Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day, they're taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecast, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Having all of your business's information in one place is a powerful thing because it allows you to make better decisions, which is why NetSuite's unprecedented offer to make this possible is something to take advantage of. Don't wait. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com strange. That's netsuite.com strange to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Strangers, normally, we like to use this time that we have together to give you a story with that classic structure that you've come to know and love. Beginning, middle, end. Exposition, rising action, climax, resolution. A particular time and place. A cast of normal people, just like you and me, except for, well, you know. It's an ancient pattern for a reason. It works. And we have you covered in that department. Usually, that is. But today, we've got something just a little different. You see, sometimes, over the course of our research process, we happen upon strange things, plural. Stories that, on their faces, might not have much in common. They might not have surfaced into public consciousness in the same paper, the same city, the same year, even the same decade. But something draws them together, a kind of chaotic connection. That something could be as simple as a common premise. A cryptid walks into a suburb, for instance. Or our bi-weekly need to write a podcast episode with whatever weird stuff has floated across our desks. But sometimes, there's a deliciously strange game of connect the dots to play, and disparate stories popping up in entirely different places and times seem destined to come together. Connect those dots hiding in the margins of local newspapers, and we not so humbly suggest that the result can be a work of art. And art is, incidentally, where we begin today. More specifically, 
Today we deal in the world of artifacts, art technology and miscellanea from bygone eras. Listeners plugged into this kind of thing might be familiar with the idea of provenance. Basically, the history of who's possessed a particular work or artifact over the course of its existence. The Mona Lisa, for example, hasn't always been in the same hands. In fact, if she had been, we wouldn't know that mysterious smile at all because those hands would have been dead for many hundreds of years. Instead, we have a record of provenance. Per PBS, da Vinci began work on the painting in 1503 while he lived in Italy and likely finished the painting four years later while he lived in France. French royalty passed it around for the next 300-odd years or so. After a stint in Napoleon Bonaparte's bedroom and two full years in the possession of thieves, the Mona Lisa settled into her permanent home at Paris's Louvre Museum in 1914. And that's the really, really simple version of a very complicated and precise record of where the Mona Lisa has been for the last 500 years. Any legitimate artifact that you see in a museum or university collection has a record of provenance, much like this one. It's an endorsement of authenticity and a story in and of itself. Don't worry, you haven't accidentally hit play on an art history podcast. This provenance thing is pretty simple and concrete fair, really. Or at least, it can be. Except for one strange thing. Provenance can also be the reason for a lot of academic types getting very, very heated. Sometimes, there is no solid record. And sometimes, and this is our favorite sometimes, the record that exists makes no sense at all. Take, for example, the story of the Maine Penny. A penny found in the state of Maine, yes, but not just any penny. Per the UPI, Norwegian academics announced in February of 1979 that a coin found on Maine's coast was, in fact, a Viking penny. The UPI wrote that the coin had been, quote, unearthed in Maine in the 1950s by an amateur archaeologist at an archaeological dig called the Goddard Site. Where the coin had been for the past 20 years is unclear, and we've not found any records to that effect. Are your spidey senses tingling yet? Cole Bjornskore, a chief curator of coin studies at the University of Oslo in Norway, told the UPI that the coin was the oldest European artifact ever found in North America and the southernmost evidence of Viking society ever discovered. If the Vikings had visited and even conducted commerce on what would become U.S. soil, then this was the first time anyone could prove it. At that time, Norwegians seemed certain that the coin proved that Vikings had been the first overseas visitors to North America. Per the UPI report, Skore smiled broadly when asked about the coin's significance as far as the debate. We are proud of being the first ones, he said. Skore and others were adamant that the coin was legitimate, even at that early stage. The UPI said of Skore that, quote, 
He said a metal analysis will be carried out to double-check the coin is an authentic Norse penny, but he was convinced that there is no doubt. Strangers, would it surprise you if we said that there was, in fact, doubt? Not that the penny was a forgery or a hoax, necessarily. The debate seems to be as to how the thing ended up in Maine in the first place, and whether it did, in fact, prove anything about Viking whereabouts. A 1986 article in the Times and Democrat of South Carolina sums up what had at that point been a decades-long dispute. The writer, Elizabeth D. Wetzel, points out that the Viking presence in North America had been anything but settled. In the search for Vinland, a new world outpost allegedly established by Viking sailors, Wetzel wrote, Viking enthusiasts on both sides of the Atlantic have tried to identify the place as far south as Florida, with the New England coastal states, the Great Lakes, and the Hudson Bay in between. Wetzel includes the main penny in a discussion of, quote, fakes, artifacts that, in her view, aren't as convincing a proof of Viking presence as advertised. The kicker with the penny was that it was, quote, too portable an item to assure that its finding in Maine was proof that the Vikings settled there. In short, anyone can come into possession of a coin or trinket from another place and drop it somewhere odd. Our very first episode dealt in precisely this sort of occurrence. Although, if we do say so ourselves, it was a very mysterious one. In any case, it seemed that the expert discourse settled on the main penny being more of an anachronism than a clue to some mythic Norse settlement in the Americas. A 2001 article in the Victorville Daily Press reported on a touring exhibition that had stopped at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, Vikings, the North Atlantic Saga. A curator went on record with the Daily Press about the main penny, which was part of the exhibition, and admitted, The main penny, the only actual proof of a Viking presence in the contiguous United States, could have been carried south by natives. The Vikings themselves were far from inexperienced travelers, but, as the Daily Press noted, their closest settlement to Maine would have been in Newfoundland, a full 900 miles away. Might they have crept even further south? The experts seem to have settled on probably not. In 2005, the American Numismatic Society, as you may or may not have guessed, they study coins, made their opinions on the main penny very clear in a blog post. There is no reliable confirmation on the documentation of the coin. The Norse coin from Maine should probably be considered a hoax. Who exactly the numismatist thought was doing the hoaxing remains unclear. We assume it was one of those juicy pieces of gossip that stays around the coin-loving water cooler. A 2007 ethnographic report from the National Park Service in Maine discusses the penny with similar skepticism, mostly because of the lack of reliable provenance. Quote, Anthropologist Edmund Carpenter recently challenged the legitimacy of this Norse penny as a scientifically retrieved artifact 
and criticized the find as unacceptable from a scholarly perspective. Since then, renewed questions about the coin's provenance demand that its supposed scientific status as incontrovertible evidence should be revised, at least for the time being, to interesting but anecdotal, end quote. As people who deal in the interesting but anecdotal ourselves, we can't help but feel a little sorry for the main penny. Sure, it's not the incontrovertible proof of Viking presence that it was made out to be, but a Norse penny in Maine is still a Norse penny in Maine, and we think that's pretty neat. But pretty neat doesn't really fly with archaeologists as far as we're aware, and there are other strange artifacts that, while pretty objectively very neat, have caused quite a stir as well. Take, for example, the Shroud of Turin. Now, that's a very famous example. You've likely heard of it. As reported by the Herald and Review in 1981, the 14-foot length of cloth has been at the center of a controversy since it emerged in the 14th century, a period in history when relic forging thrived. The image bears marks of crucifixion and piercing, and millions believe it is the cloth that Joseph used to place under and over the body of Jesus in his tomb almost 2,000 years ago. Now, strangers, some who view the shroud see the impression of a body. Some see the impression of a face. Some simply question everything about it. In 2010, the Daily Press in Argus interviewed a Columbus State University alumni who made the shroud his life's work. That self-styled shroud expert, Russ Brault, told the paper that he believes that the shroud is legitimate. And what about radiocarbon dating done back in the 1980s, which placed the shroud's creation between 1260 and 1390 AD, and thus designated it as a forgery? Couldn't be trusted, according to Russ Brault. Testing also confirmed that the marks weren't made with ink or dye, and couldn't have been done with the techniques available in those same centuries. To boot, the Daily Press and Argus added that there was something very interesting that could be detected on the shroud. Quote, Traces of a blood-like substance produced by the human body during times of great trauma have been found on the shroud. But again, there's that pesky issue of provenance. Russ Brault admitted, The shroud pops in and out of history. Here's the proposition. It's either authentic or it's not. But if it's not, we don't know what it is. If it's not authentic, we don't know what it is. That is music to our ears, strangers. As far as we can tell, the jury is still very much out on the Shroud's ultimate authenticity, or even how it could be proved in a way that everyone could agree on. And there are others out there facing similar situations. Hey there, strangers. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. 
On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from two totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy is a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of a haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. Really, this is the perfect podcast for fans of One Strange Thing. All the paranormal activity that you love and the great research that you've come to rely on. So, listen to The Dead Files, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Proponents and opponents of the Antikythera mechanism face a similar dilemma. The shoebox-sized hunk of bronze was, per the Calgary Herald, recovered from an ancient shipwreck off a Greek island at the turn of the 20th century. It was covered in barnacles and was far less interesting at the time than the other 2,000-year-old artifacts fished out of the wreck, life-size statues, ceramics, and delicate glasswork. You'll note that we said, far less interesting at the time. In 2015, the Seattle Times wrote that local researchers were helping to work out the hunk of metal's origins and purpose. And boy, did they. Quote, The device consisted of a series of intricate interlocking gears designed to predict eclipses and calculate the positions of the sun, moon, and planets as they swept across the sky. Researchers at the University of Puget Sound were part of the international team working on the mechanism. And when the Times ran the story, they'd just finished an analysis suggesting the mechanism might date back to 205 BC, a full century earlier than previously thought. There's a few things about that date that currently oppose what we know of the Greeks. According to USA Today, gear wheels like the mechanisms shouldn't have been invented for another millennium or so. Per the Times, the mechanism replicates stuttering elliptical orbits and other astrological phenomena that the Greeks would not have known about. And we're not even sure how the mechanism was actually used. Per the Calgary Herald, it might have been powered by water and acted like a clock, or it might have been a hand-cranked kind of computer. In this instance, it's not the provenance that's the issue precisely, it's the condition of the mechanism itself. Per the Seattle Times, around 80 pieces of what looks like the same device have been retrieved from the shipwreck in various states of corrosion. As it turns out, hundreds of years in salty seawater is perhaps not the best way to preserve delicate metalwork. So, at this point, those who study the mechanism are making their best guesses based on what little evidence and context that they have. Strangers, we've just presented you with a series of artifacts that were found in places they were not, by all logic, supposed to be. They're legitimate and not weird little art projects. Understanding their origin could mean cataclysmic shifts in the human story as we know it. And there have been a number of people out there who have built theories upon them, ranging from the outlandish to the extraterrestrial. Of what we've discussed, the Antikythera mechanism is the most famously potentially alien. Per the Nassau edition, technician and craftsman Robert Dorosky makes models of how the mechanism might have worked and was told by others interested in the mechanism repeatedly, quote, that the Greeks were given the mechanism by beings from outer space. Naturally, there are a lot of those types of theorists for a lot of different artifacts. A 1978 book review in the record Searchlight discusses one such example, posited in the book Secrets of the Lost Races by Reina Norbergen. Reina Norbergen argued that oop arts 
His moniker for out-of-place artifacts are evidence that ancient civilizations were vastly more advanced than we give them credit for. As the record searchlight sums up, recently uncovered were Hindu manuscripts dating back to 2400 BC, giving a detailed scientific description on the detonation of an atomic-like bomb. Diggings in China have revealed documents that describe the uses of X-rays. In ancient Babylonian ruins, dry cell batteries have been uncovered. Norbergen's thesis is essentially that ancient civilizations like the Chaldeans, Sumerians, and Babylonians were technologically advanced, earlier and more so than we presently understand. And then there's Eric von Daniken, widely condemned by pretty much everyone else who cares about facts. Von Daniken's claim to fame is a massive catalog of books arguing that the only explanation for out-of-place artifacts is, you guessed it, aliens. Chariot of the Gods, released in 1968, is the most famous of these books. Per Yahoo UK, it sold 70 million copies to date and spent a good amount of time on the New York Times bestseller list. In a 1974 interview with the Times, one in which the reporter was clearly not enthused, Von Daniken, by this point close to a household name, was not taken especially seriously by the author. Quote, Ironically for a man who was almost gaga about space science, much of what Von Daniken purveys depends upon ancient religious myths. He says that the astonishing astronomical information ancient civilizations, such as the Mayans, had is proof that there were some space travelers around to teach it to them. Von Daniken's evidence, then, is that of an enthusiastic amateur, not a scholar, an amateur with an axe to grind. There is an urgent recurring motif, a running complaint against the high priests of organized religion, who, along with the archaeologists, refuse to admit the truth as Von Daniken has revealed it. Actually, most modern religion is not anti-scientific, though it might well be anti-Von Daniken. Those two are not synonymous, end quote. The thing is, though, Raina Norbergen and Eric Von Daniken are not alone. They're part of a long legacy of writers who ascribe the unexplainable parts of history to the outlandish or otherworldly, or the civilizations they simply refuse to recognize. On the other hand, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was Charles Fort, per the Charles Fort Institute, the namesake of the word Fortian, which is one of our favorite words. The Institute notes that, in his chronicling of the paranormal and unexplained, Charles collected a number of stories of oop arts, including the Esperanza Stone, and believed them to be alien in origin. And there's also Peter Colosimo, who was referred to by GQ magazine in 2009 as a worldwide best-selling author and one of the founders of pseudo-archaeology. And there's Michael Cremo, self-described on his website as an alternative archaeologist. And he's not especially fringe, either. He's given talks at Google, written archaeological articles for an affiliate of the United Nations, no aliens in those, as far as we can tell. But he does suggest in books and on his website that ancient societies were advanced 
because modern humans had been on Earth for tens of millions of years, rather than the generally agreed upon 200,000-ish. And of course, there's that ancient alien guy that continues for some reason to be very popular. Strangers, we know that there's an off-the-wall conspiracy theory for just about everything these days, even things that are well and truly settled as fact. So it's not especially surprising that out-of-place artifacts have, for a long time, brought a lot of people to consider the otherworldly or outrageous. Even the straight-laced academic types can end up grasping at straws. For our part, well, we have no qualms letting mysterious sleeping dogs lie, or at least nap. Could aliens have created a cosmic computer and dropped it off with the Greeks? Could the Vikings have been such masterful sailors that one dropped a penny on the coast of Maine? Could the Shroud of Turin wrap the body of Jesus, disappeared for swaths of hundreds of years, and then reappeared, beautifully preserved? There are brilliant scholars out there who are working on filling in the gaps with cold, hard evidence. But for now, leaving all options on the table is our idea of a good time. And if the provenance of one of these artifacts ever turns out to have involved some time spent in alien hands, well, we'll be sure to circle back. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers, One Strange Thing is an independently produced podcast to support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There, you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, blogs, and monthly live streams, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code RESTFUL15. So head to B-O-L-L and branch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details.